Thank you so much, Aaron. Um, uh, I'm reminded of the passage out of Luke 20 that says uh, they were trying to trick Jesus, and he says, whose image is on the coin? And it's this great illustration that Jesus is giving about uh, whose image is on your life. And I think it's a great passage on identity, and so that's a great place to start. And so, kids, if you want to go with Miss Aaron and company, that would be very good. Uh, as, we, as we get started, just a couple of announcements. Uh, this September, we have got some wholesale changes as we, as a family, grow up. Uh, and so starting in September, our next worship service, which is not next week, uh, we are going to be having, uh, we're going to be beginning at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Move it up one hour earlier. We have a lot of kids, and that just seems to maybe work a little bit better for some. And so we're going to be meeting from uh, starting at 4 o'clock from now on. The other thing we're adding is we're going to continue to have the first Sunday or the first weekend of each month set aside for tribes. Mostly because we want to maintain our commitment to having a spiritual laboratory with a community of people that we experiment and practice our faith together. But the rest of the Sundays, we're going to devote to coming here and having a, a worship gathering. Uh, and so we want to try and grow our church in a more accessible way and so with a little bit more consistency. The other thing we're doing is we're adding, asking tribes to add a second meeting time that isn't necessarily a Sunday to find maybe that third week to gather. So, for instance, on the third uh, Friday of the month, the North and the Central tribes are partnering with Foundation Community, uh, where everyone there is a part of a subsidized housing. Most of them are immigrants, and they have something called Supper Club. And it's just a chance to show up with a dinner, and you don't just serve them, you eat with them. And... This is a really amazing thing, not just to go to, but then to invite people to as well. I think it depoliticizes our very politicized immigration debate, and it just makes it entirely relational. So I want to encourage you to participate in that. One thing, next weekend, uh, Pastor Jonathan has had his third child, and it's in the Burmese tradition that instead of doing a baby shower before the birth, they do a, a one-month um, shower, and he wanted to, to host it, which uh, I said, great, we'll bring food and we'll bring gifts. They're not used to giving gifts because, well, they're very poor. Uh, so we wanted to be able to show up uh, and do that. So I know that the South Tribe is going to participate in that next Sunday as a part of their tribe. It is Labor Day weekend, but if some of you want to participate in that as well, just talk to Connie and she can give you some more of the details coming up next week. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Henry Nouwen. Um, he was a prolific writer, but for years uh, he taught at the divinity schools of Harvard, Notre Dame, Yale. I mean, he was astute. He was a theologian. Um, he was a writer, this professor, and he had drawn such great acclaim and worked at all these very prestigious institutions. And then he reached this point in his life, and without going into the details of the circumstances, he ended up going and kind of spending the last years of his career, arguably for an intellectual, the best years of his life, working in this group outside of Toronto, Canada, called Larch. Larch. How would I say that, Zavi? Larch. Our Frenchman sitting here going, oh, you just butchered that. That's why when we go to the French bakery, I say, order that for me. Uh, and it was 
It's a community that was started in 1946 dedicated to those with intellectual and mental disabilities. Think about that for a moment. One of the most brilliant minds, academically acclaimed, a complete intellectual, he cashes it all in. People, his peers and colleagues are thinking he threw it all away to go work for people that can't appreciate the brilliant intellect that is Henry Nouwen, except that he didn't throw it all away. See, to him, it was what he had been looking for his whole life to actually experience Christ in people that didn't have any pretense or didn't have the capacity to be wax eloquent or to write or, or to create in some way or to have this unique skill set that they propped up their life with. It was just simple people who, when you learn to communicate on a very rudimentary level, it began to speak to him. It became transformational. Now, what's unique about this is tonight I want to talk about blessed are the pure in heart. This is Matthew 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 8. In fact, since we don't have the screen, there's some seat Bibles that I would just encourage you to open up to Matthew 5, 8, if, or if you want to pull it up on your phone, just to have it in front of you, because I want to make some references to it. And it just helps to see them. I want to review a little bit about where we've been. But Jesus comes, and he introduces this new kind of OS. It's an operating system. And what he's talking about is he's giving us a new way to be human. And if you have ever felt this way, if you've been around the church long enough and felt, can I just be honest, underwhelmed by God? Amen? If you've ever felt or struggled with doubt or feeling like you've been spiritually stalled or stuck, Jesus comes at the onset of his public ministry with this really compelling operating system called the Beatitudes. And it starts with four inward qualities, we'll call them, and four outward expressions. Because the work has to be done inside of us before it can be done outside of us. And so if you start to go through the Beatitudes, all of a sudden you realize there's this inward journey that we need to take. And so let's just review where we've been over the last couple of months. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? It literally would translate, blessed are the fallen ones. Yeah, I'm in. That sounds like me, because if there's anything that life feels like, it feels like two steps forward, one step back, because I keep tripping over my pride. I keep tripping over my stubbornness. I keep tripping over lots of things. I count myself as one of the fallen ones. But why he calls it blessed is because what he's saying is that blessed are the fallen ones because they realize it doesn't matter how great their education, how charming their personality, how high their IQ, they understand their need for God. One of the hardest things to do for people that I'm just talking about all of us now who are all living in first world countries with great affluence, it's actually really profoundly hard to find our need for God or to live with some kind of dependency essentially because I can kind of get by with my own sort of wit and wisdom to um, <clears throat> put a roof over my head, um, food went on my table, uh, clothes on my back. I don't necessarily see the hand of God in that. 
except that it is. Blessed are the fallen ones who actually realize their need for God. That starts on a very personal level. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, okay, who are they mourning over? The fallen ones. And so when you start to go through this whole passage out of Matthew uh, chapter 5, and you, you start to read, the, the mourn are those who feel desperate. The ones, and sounds like you, see if this sounds like you, who feel like they're without options, who sort of get to the end of the work with rope, and they cry out. But for the first time, they begin to experience, maybe you have begun to experience God, not as one of many options. You quit hobbying with God. You quit sort of being influenced by culture with God and it becomes much more gritty and real and you experience God for maybe the first time as comfort or you notice God as provider. You wake up to the reality that God is healer and the God of the universe becomes personal in a new way and it only happens when we learn to first mourn over us and those who have fallen I experience so many times in conversation with people that people feel like they have to somehow get their act together before they enter into faith community or come into the church or approach the throne room of God. I'm like, are you kidding me? The best time to meet God is when you're out of options, when you're desperate beyond measure and you get a cancer diagnosis or something terrible has happened. He goes on to say, blessed are the meek. Who are those? Those are simply the humble ones who struggle, who seek God in the midst of struggle. And it could be the struggle for apathy or the struggle for ethics. But all of a sudden, faith becomes living. And God becomes, and one of the things we said a few weeks ago, is the meek mind the means. In other words, those of those who, who experience meekness, those who walk humbly, are those people who all of a sudden, they, they start to learn what they can and can't do without God. And faith becomes a new living reality of humility. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And hunger and thirsting is all about desire. And so how are we cultivating desire? Well, what what is desire except that it comes in our heart and it's the seed of desire, motives, attitude. So what is it that we're conditioning our heart around? I've got to be honest. There are things that I could watch, but that would start to replay in my mind over and over again. There are things that I could listen to except that I don't want to cultivate the, 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 the soil of my heart based on that imagery or that kind of conversation. And so one of the things scripture's clear on is guard your heart. And so I think we need to consider a, a, a maybe a, a, a better filter for what we let in. But he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then a couple weeks ago, we had Jess talk to us about what it is. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is where now we've turned the corner from the inward journey, and these are outward expressions. And why the inward journey is so important is that if we don't do the internal work, it's like it's like bandaging a wound that we haven't cleaned. And so if we don't do the inward work, all Christianity becomes is behavior modification, and there's no transformation in that. And Jesus is introducing us to this new way to be human, this new way to condition our hearts, this new way to be born again and again and again. So he says, now, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart 
seeing God. Seeing what God sees only occurs when we give our hearts to God. Not hobby in God, not treat God like a buffet line, like I'm going to pick here and I'm going to pick here. I like this New Testament. I don't like this Old Testament. I think I like this command, but not this command. No, 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 no. He says, the way you ingest me. In fact, he often uses the reference or the metaphor of the bread of life, which was ground zero for all meal. Every culture of all time have had bread as its basic kind of sustenance. And he says the way and, and the way we come to faith is that we swallow, we, we inhale, we, we consume God in our whole life. We don't just nibble. We, we, we can't just snack on God if it's to be a transformational process. And so, again, um, here's what I would say. Christianity isn't simply adopting uh, an ethical or moral code. It's, it's a covenant bond. It's this relationship with Christ based on love. And can I just say this? Love makes us do irrational things. Have you ever done rather silly things in the beginning stages of a dating relationship? I mean, that would be one funny tribe to just go around and say stupid things I did in the first month of dating. Or, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you tend to sacrifice a lot of time and sleep. You tend to give up. You tend to do irrational things. You tend to want to be in, or, or willing to be inconvenienced. You, you tend to want to share more. There are irrational things we do when we fall in love with one another. So it is with our relationship with Christ. So when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, it's like he's giving this new perspective on life. The pure in heart learn to see God for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and they willingly insert themselves into being a part of God's justice. So it's not those freeloading refugees. It's those displaced people who had to leave their home and they're living in squalor here. They might not be assimilating well, but they also haven't met any Americans and they've been here for five years. No one's befriended them. One of the heartbreaking things that I do is when I find especially kids, grade school and teenage kids, and I said, have you met any American friends? No, I haven't found one yet that says, I have American friends. Blessed are the pure in heart because they can see God in a food stamp recipient that isn't actually giving back yet to our society. Blessed are the pure in heart because they can afford forgiveness where they have done nothing wrong and been the one who's been offended. Blessed are the pure in heart because they can see that even as much as they bear the image and need the grace of God, so does a perpetrator. All of a sudden, God is messing with us on a heart level, and he's calling us to radical transformation. And unless we've done the heart work, this outward appearance just looks like behavior modification. And so he calls us to this powerful... I like the way the, the message says it. He says, you're blessed when... When you get inside your world, your mind and your heart put right, then you can see God in the outside world. 
Now, this passage is actually a reference. When Jesus stands up and he gives each one of these um, sort of beatitudes, poor in spirit and meek and, and, and mourn, they're each a reference to something that came out of the Torah, the law and the prophets. And so in this verse 8, when he says, blessed are the pure, pure in spirit, he's actually referencing Psalm 73. If you're taking notes, I just want to encourage you to jot down Psalm 73. It's worth a look at. In fact, it's worth looking at in maybe some different versions. If you have an older version or even an NIV, is a harder version to really grasp what's going on in all of Psalm 73. And we don't have time to go into the whole passage. But if you read something like the New Living Translation or the Contemporary English, version uh, or even the message is a tr it's more of a it's not exactly a, a translation but it's a version uh, it, it starts to spell it out and listen to why it sounds so relevant based on what Jesus is introducing is because the whole thing the writer's summary of this passage is why does life seem unfair Okay, did that feel autobiographical have you ever shaken your fist at God in some way and asked that question and so let me just read the first couple of verses of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens. I mean, this is the equivalent of why do good things happen to bad people? And what we're really saying is, I'm better than them. Can you bless me more? But he goes on to say, um, therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity or sin. Their evil conceits of their minds have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression with oppression. What he's painting out of this picture is this. He says, success often has nothing to do with godliness. So if we want to keep our hearts pure, like pray, like keep your heart so from envy, keep it pure from envy. It's hard to desire this or to need God when we don't lack for safety or shelter. So keep your heart pure from apathy. For those of you who have ever studied Latin on some level, I, I read this and I didn't, but I mean, I've studied a little bit of languages along the way. And there's a, a description of infatuation because there's all of these things we give our hearts to um, but then they subside I mean if you're a parent how many of you listen to your kids first request especially if it's like a Christmas list or can I have this and they ask and they ask and it kind of winds down but if they stick with it over time and it's something they really want or you know then it becomes oh I really need it but the Latin derivative that where we get the word infatuation from is uh, um, it, it, it comes from this phrase, it says, ignus fatuus, meaning false fire. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, when we cultivate right desire, when we understand God's desire, when we understand that God's heart always is bent towards reconciliation, towards restoration, towards redemption, and oh, wretches like me, we start to see that I'm no different than them. I might dress different. I might have different skin color. I might have a different sexual orientation. I might have different sin. But the point is this. I need God's grace 
as much as the next person. And so when we start to hear him cry out, why does God, oh, life seem so unfair? It's keep your heart pure from envy. Keep your heart pure from apathy. See, when we look around, we start wondering, well, where's God? Or how could he let that happen? We feel like maybe God should be more present. But here's, let me just finish by asking you this question. What if a large part of how we feel about injustice, about how we feel about abuse, about how we feel about greed or corruption, about how we feel uh, about wealth or accomplishment is supposed to help us feel how God already feels. Instead of shaking our fists and saying, why doesn't God do something? But we feel outrage. Maybe that's part of God's divine calling for us. God, why don't you do something to help them? And maybe that's God stirring us and giving us eyes to see. I think our hearts are supposed to expose this, to have this experience that God already sees and wants to remedy. There's a, a quote by uh, uh, Henry Nouwen that I just want to say. He says, the spiritual life does not remove us from the world, but it does lead us deeper into it. The reaction to be more pure in heart isn't somehow to escape. The reaction is to allow ourselves to be immersed in culture and when push comes to shove, not bow a knee. The point is God wants to restore our lives so we become the light, we become the salt, we become the life that God intended from the beginning. So we want to spend a little bit of time purifying our own hearts, coming to the Lord's table, having a chance to break of the bread and drink of the cup because what we understand is this. If there's anyone who understands the temptation, if there's anyone who understands the broken places, brokenhearted because of relationship, brokenhearted because of loss, brokenhearted or, or broken physically, Jesus does. And he says to us, this is my body broken for you. This is a kind of resonance that he shared he says, do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you break of this bread, drink of this cup. Because the cup doesn't leave us in our brokenness. The cup represents the newness of life. We need that blood to flow to every last part of our body. Otherwise, we have to amputate. And he's saying, Drink of this cup as often as you eat of this bread. So I want to encourage you. I'm going to invite Hal to come up, and he's going to lead us through a couple of prayers together as we prepare our hearts for communion and to close our time in worship together. Hal, would you lead us?